What is up, guys, and welcome back to the most bizarre show on the internet. I am the one that they call Shane. And I'm Orn. Just Orn. Just Orn over there. Just Orn. Still. <laughs> and uh, tonight, we have a relatively longer one that's going to be part of a multi-part series. So I guess we won't do too much with news and updates. We have some stuff that we want to talk about that's about to come up over the horizon, but it's got a little bit of time, so we'll just let that one wait for now. So uh, with that, I guess we'll hop right into the front of the house. Orn, take it away with front of the house stuff, man. All right, guys. You know the drill do all the social media stuff youtube discord tiktok instagram the email bizarre encounters at outlook.com just get up with us for any suggestions for topics guests uh collaborations anything like that and also you guys remember to submit questions for the patreon exclusive mini show bizarre inquiries it can be something serious it can be something funny it doesn't even have to be something paranormal whatever you guys want us to talk about and inquire about we'll do it and uh, if you guys haven't already followed up and listened to the first two episodes of that show, uh, just to throw it out there, and eventually I'll stop saying it. I apologize, guys. But uh, at least the, one episode a month will get dropped onto YouTube and on the normal feed. The rest of them will be a Patreon exclusive. So everybody will get a little bit of a taste of it. But uh, if you guys really enjoy it and you guys want to get it weekly, make sure you guys uh, go and check out the Patreon. Uh, but if anybody has any encounters to report, no matter how big, no matter how small, we absolutely would love to hear about them and possibly be able to even investigate them depending on where you're located. Uh, you guys can contact us about those through OMMEncounterReports.outlook.com or you guys can go to the link tree, fill the submission form specifically for that. Make sure you guys click on the right one because there is two. There's the contact us and the report encounter, report and encounter. So just, you know, if you're doing it by that means, just make sure you guys are clicking on the right one, of course. And uh, if you guys want to support us, there's a couple different ways to do so. Number one is to go and become a Patreon member, trying to uh, grow that as much as we possibly can this year, uh, starting to offer exclusive content as far as, you know, bizarre inquiries like we were just mentioning. Uh, I have another thing that I'm going to be working on that's over there. Uh, we got bizarre encounters. We got inquiries of our reality. So you're getting multiple shows over there, a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, you're getting ad-free episodes of shows, lives of shows, live replays of shows, early access to shows, exclusive merch store discounts, uh, exclusive hangouts. Uh, there's also some some tangible dry goods and stuff like that over there now. So, you know, depending on what you guys want, make sure you guys check out the tiers. Recently updated those a couple weeks ago. Uh, I am now offering also a 
seven-day free trial for the $3 and the $5 tier. So if you guys want to see what it's all about, you guys can go and check that out. And uh, you guys can also donate to the show directly through Red Circle, which is our RSS host for the show. Uh, if you guys donate, let us know that you guys donated because we love to give appreciation where appreciations do, of course. And the third way you guys can support the show is by going and checking out the Open Minds Media merch store. Over there, you'll get a lot of awesome gear for everything that's under the Open Minds Media radar and uh, any other random cryptid designs, all that fun stuff that I work on. I do drop random promo codes here and there over on the social media pages. So if you guys are interested in getting some type of a discount promo, make sure you guys go and follow on the pages. Or you guys can become a Patreon member. And depending on which tier you are, uh, all tiers have their own individual promo link. Depending on how much you get off, depends on which tier you select. So definitely worth going and checking both out. And number four, you guys can leave a review or rating for the show on iTunes or Spotify. Hopefully all five stars. And if you guys leave a five-star review, we will read on the show, give you guys a big shout out. And uh, you guys can also share the show through word of mouth. Awesome way to help the show grow. Trying to get the show and everything to grow as much as we possibly can this year. So help all those algorithms, make it so more people are able to find the show and we can keep on growing and possibly get to a point where we can just produce just constant, everyday, awesome, awesome content for you guys. And as always, a big, big thanks to our wonderful sponsors. I know Squatch, Rick and Hans are always killing it. You know, we love their stuff. Uh, me and Jenny actually ordered a couple t-shirts. They just came in this week. Uh, we got them for kind of festival and convention season this year. It's uh, the same pattern that's on the koozie I always carry. So now I can match. <laughs> so, uh, you know, of course, uh, Hans and Rick, they're always killing it. And if you're looking for something else to support, Joe at Crypto Theology, he's killing it too with his uh, cryptid and alien high strangeness designs. And uh, just to throw it out there too, I was working out something with I Know Squatch. And uh, any event that we are at vending that they are not going to be at, it, you guys will be able to pick up I Know Squatch gear from our table. So if you guys really enjoy seeing the stuff that we wear, you guys want to pick up stuff for yourself, and you guys are planning on coming out to an event that we're going to be at this year, uh, we should have some of their merch. So you guys will be able to get some I Know Squatch gear alongside with any of the Open Minds Media gear, of course. And uh, going back to the sponsors, of course, uh, don't forget to go and check out Snarly Gal over there. Dave is absolutely fantastic from all of his awesome beard and body products. Uh, I use them all every day myself now, personally. He's got beard balms, he's got beard oil, soap, body wash, all that awesome stuff. And on top of doing all of that, uh, Dave is very active in the cryptic community, always putting on a lot of awesome events, which anybody that is familiar with our stuff, we've been doing for the past year or two. Um, last year we actually spoke at his cryptid Halloween event, which we will also be at again this year speaking and emceeing. So he's always putting on some awesome events. So just another reason to go follow Snarly Yao and Dave and, uh, check out all of the awesome stuff that he's doing over there and to, uh, oh, my and paranormal special thanks. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say into a uh, special thanks to Dave this week. Cause he hooked me and Shane up with a couple Snarly Yao t-shirts that we just got in the mail this week. So, uh, it's been like Christmas over here for us uh, <laughs> past week or so. I'm glad you brought that up because I would have totally just glazed right over that. I did a post for it earlier, actually, which is perfect. But uh, yeah, he's got these awesome uh, olive military looking green with the Snarly Yao symbol on the front. So you guys can go and check it out. I don't know if he has those available on his store yet, but he was talking about working out those designs to be able to sell them on his store. So that's just another thing you guys will be able to pick up from Snarly Yao because he's kind of touching bases in a bunch of different places. And uh, to all my paranormal investigators out there, don't forget to go and check out the Chattergeist. It is the all-in-one paranormal investigating device. My absolute favorite. I use it every single time I go out. And uh, if anybody has any technical questions on it whatsoever, 
You guys can hit up Barry over there on Dimension Devices. He is the guy that programmed and developed it, so he'll be able to answer just about any question you could possibly have for it. And I know he has a lot of new awesome updates that are coming for it. Uh, he's making a new watch band that's going to attach. Uh, the app is supposed to drop soon where everything will be able to track right onto your phone instead of on the device itself, which would be absolutely fantastic. And uh, if you guys decide to pick up one for yourself, make sure you guys use our affiliate link. Greatly appreciate it. goes towards helping out the show. And uh, again, I just something else I want to point out with Chattergeist. Uh, his whole intention is that he doesn't want to necessarily have you buy a new device every year. He plans on putting out constant patches and updates for it. So if you're worried about getting one because he might drop a new one soon, that's not the case. He wants to keep working and programming and making his device the absolute best. So again, just another reason to pull the trigger on it if you're already thinking about it. And uh, everything we mentioned is all available in the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And with that, we have a very long, awesome series to get into. And this was all of Oren's awesome research. So I'm going to pass the mic over to him and get the ball rolling on this fantastic saga that is part of our longer saga. So this is actually like, how do I even describe this? This is like the, the shared universe. Yes, part of the shared universe. But this yeah, is going to be is, like uh, a continuous be series in the middle. Phase one, if you will. This can be the Avenger part because that was a two yeah, part that exactly. was back to back. So this will be a three part that's back to back. So just imagine this like the Avengers. This is this is the high point before we start the next phase. Yeah, and hopefully uh, the next phase doesn't turn all to shit like it did with Marvel, but we shall see. <laughs> well, just to throw in a little snippet for stuff that's going to be happening in the future, I know everybody recently listened to the DMT episode, trying to do a little bit different of stuff than normal people are talking about within the community, and I do have some awesome urban legend uh, stuff that I've been working on, uh, which will accompany other countries, other places. So we'll be mixing it up, bringing some other stuff to light that not a lot of other podcasters talk about. So we got a lot of awesome stuff on the horizon for phase two. <laughs> All right. So uh, jumping into this uh, conclusion of phase one, uh, like Shane said, I think this is going to end up probably being a three-part series. That's my goal. Uh, unless something crazy happens, I'm going to cap it at three parts. But Anyway, so as part of our unofficial like Monsters of Appalachia series, I knew that we had to talk about Mothman. You know, we did Flatwoods, we did Hopkinsville. You got to talk about Mothman. That's the other big one. See, this is but, one of those I mean, ones, though, that I feel like a lot of podcasters talk about, but they don't necessarily make a full episode dedicated to it because there's so much entailed with it that it's like it's almost hard to cover all the bases on this topic. There's only well, like a handful I've that, seen that have covered it like that great, you know? I mean, what are we going to say that hasn't been said about Mothman a million times? You know, So with that in mind, I came up with this idea that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I hadn't really seen anybody do it. Not saying it hasn't been done. I just haven't run across it. But I thought what we'd do is kind of take the Mothman phenomenon and look at it kind of through the lens of John Keel and his Mothman Prophecies book. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off by talking a little bit about John Keel himself, and then we're going to kind of go through the book chapter by chapter, discussing, theorizing, all that good stuff like we always do, and then there'll be a bit of a wrap-up at the end of part three. Man, so this really the, is uh, an Avengers series. You've been dropping Easter eggs left and right throughout the series. I You're have. like, John Keel, hint, hint. John Keel, hint, yeah. hint. <laughs> and now we're finally here. <laughs> so that's kind of the roadmap uh, that we're going to be following here for the next three episodes, and... Before uh, we jump in, so once we get into the actual like kind of meat of the Mothman Prophecies book, Keel kind of pulls a Tarantino and he jumps around a lot in the narrative and in timelines and things like that. So I've kind of tried to streamline it as much as possible. Um, 
You're messing with people. We're I talking mean, about the Richard Gere movie, right? Because that, that's, that yeah, was my yeah, research yeah. I did. I watched the movie. I took notes on the movie. We're covering the I'm movie sorry. specifically. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, just so this didn't end up being a 10-part series, I've kind of focused mostly on the things that actually happened in Point Pleasant and then kind of some of Keel's larger concepts and ideas. But, you know, the book, he's got tons of encounters and sightings and things like that that happen all over the world. So this is by no means comprehensive. This is just kind of scratching the surface. I'm assuming a lot of our listeners have already, you know, kind of read the book. And if not, hey, this is a good chance for y'all to run out and buy it and you can go through it chapter by chapter with us. So anyway. Pause the podcast now, pick up the book and make sure you continue it within an hour of picking up the book because we don't want (laughs) you to not come back around. You got to come back around. Or you can listen to it, and we'll just try to... Actually, it's going to be spoilers, so if you want to read the book, just skim through it with us, I guess, but pick it up. (laughs) It's not a super long book. It's a quick read. I mean, you can knock it out pretty quickly. But anyway, so unless you got anything else, Shane, we will go ahead and jump in. No, I'll shut my mouth for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, a little bit about John Keel. John Alva Keel was one of the most influential Fortean paranormal investigators and writers in history. Uh, He was born on March 25th, 1930 in Hornell, New York. And his parents divorced shortly after his birth, and he was raised by his grandparents until his mother later remarried. And this is kind of interesting. As a child, he was fascinated by magic, science and aviation so you know all these guys we talk about of that same time period those are the things sounds like jack parsons <laughs> parsons and um when we did george van tassel in the integratron episode like all these guys are into the same things but uh anyway uh he was also interested in uh writing and he had a short story published in a magician's magazine when he was only 12 years old And when he was 16, he dropped out of high school and moved to New York City so he could pursue writing full time. And so for a few years, he kind of worked as a freelance writer and editor until he was drafted into the army during the Korean War. And because of kind of his writing and media background, he was assigned to work at the Armed Forces radio uh, station when he was uh, stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. So, uh, you know, he did his military service and then he got out of the army and he was offered a civilian job through the army. But uh, he soon resigned from that so he could travel Asia and the Middle East. And these travels served as the inspiration for his first book. I believe it's pronounced uh, Jado. I would have guessed Jadu. Jadu, yeah. Because it has the two O's, Jadu. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, But anyway, that book was published in 1957. So during the 60s, uh, Keel worked as a writer on several television shows, and he even wrote a novel titled The Fickle Finger of Fate. So he likes alliteration even more than I do, apparently. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I don't think I want to meet that, uh, that Finkle Finger of Fate. That doesn't sound like a yeah, good time that, to that me. That sounds naughty. But uh, anyway, he <laughs> sounds like a magical that, fiasco. <laughs> yeah, under the uh, pseudonym of Harry Gibbs. And in 1966, he was hired by Playboy magazine to write an article on the UFO phenomenon. (laughs) Talk about backwards. You figured that the frickled finger would have been in Playboy. (laughs) 
I mean, what a life this guy was living. You know, the 60s must have been a hell of a time. You just get hired by Playboy to write about UFOs. That would have been that ultimate time that you actually were being legitimate about saying, I'm just here for the articles. I'm just reading the articles. <laughs> like, I don't care if there's a naked girl on a full page. If there's a UFO article, that's where I would be. <laughs> Spoiler alert. The article was actually never published. Ooh. But it did kind of spark Keel's interest in the UFO topic. They're like, this so is too that- good. You're releasing information. We can't do this. Sorry. Yeah. Playboy is a psyop. We can't do it. <laughs> he was kind of just off to the races after that. And he interviewed UFO eyewitnesses all over the country. And, you know, many of these findings were published in various like UFO magazines and newsletters and things like that. But uh, Keel is probably, apart from the Mothman Prophecies book, most widely known for popularizing the concepts of the men in black and ultra terrestrials. And, you know, those are two concepts we've talked about and hit on you know, a hundred times on the show. If you aren't familiar with both of those, I don't know where the hell you guys have been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not listening to us. Yeah. Clearly not listening to us, (laughs) but uh, we'll discuss both of those really in depth in this series. Uh, And he wrote several books. um, Operation Trojan horse and the eighth tower are probably the two big ones other than the Mothman prophecies. Uh, Mothman was published in 1975. And of course it chronicles his investigation of, a whole series of high strangeness that took place in Point Pleasant, West Virginia during the 1960s. So uh, as most of you guys know, you know, Point Pleasant was the site of the Silver Bridge collapse on December 15th of 1967. And that was kind of how all this culminated. So we're going to get into that more as we go along. But, uh, you know, a lot of people know Keel from the 2002 movie, The Mothman Prophecies, uh, starring Richard Gere. But we're not going to talk about that in that series, in the series here, because I just don't think it's a very good movie. But it's a uh, it's it's um it's it's there. That's the, <laughs> I don't know how else to it, describe it. it. Yeah, it's it's there. The thing that exists. <laughs> like, OK, so me and Jenny rented it and watched it. Didn't you love that Mothman face? How bad it was. It's just like, <laughs> well, I was like. I don't know if this movie is better or worse if, like, you know the story and know what's going... Like, I almost think it would be better going in blind and, like, not knowing anything about the story. Because if you do know the story, you're looking for certain things that just aren't fucking in the movie, you know? I feel like most people watch that movie just kind of taking it as, like, a 90s or early 2000s, like, movie. Just, like, not really attaching it with, like, a cryptid. Because, I mean, as long as I've been into this cryptid stuff, man, I hadn't actually, like, attached both of them until a couple of years ago. And when I watched both of them after being familiar with all of it, like I was very disappointed and that's coming from somebody who's a huge fan of like eighties horror. Like it wasn't like cheesy bad where it was like good. It was just, uh, yeah, they kind of like in a no man's land. Yeah. It was just off there enough to be good. And it's not bad enough to really be bad, but well, it's so bad that it's good. Yeah. (laughs) You did bring up something interesting though, about like the lack of cryptids in it. As we will see, you know, it's called the Mothman Prophecies. Everybody talks about the Mothman. But in the book, that's like a really small percentage of like the overall text. Like he spends more time talking about like the men in black and UFOs than he does Mothman. Even though it's the name. (laughs) Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, just like the movie, because I think there's like one scene where you see the Mothman and it's like this really like kind of stagnant sort of. image that's just flying at the car. And I'm pretty sure the face doesn't move. They just took a picture and like use that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It, yeah, it's very low budget. But anyway, so that movie came out in 2002. Uh, you guys go check it out if you want to or not. Either way. You, you won't, you won't and, be missing uh, out on anything, in all fairness. No, I'll just give you guys no. that. Read the book. <laughs> just just read the book, yeah. And John Keel passed away on July 3rd, 2009 at the age of 79. So unless Long you've life. got anything about John Keel, we will jump right into the book. Let's hop right into the book, man. I want to get into the Mothman prophecies. So like I said, we're going to start at chapter one and go through chapter by chapter. So chapter one is called Beelzebub Visits West Virginia. And this chapter kind of begins with Keel telling the story of his car breaking down on the back roads of West Virginia. And it was on this rainy night in November of 1967. So he was kind of, you know, plodding through the mud and the rain, trying to find help to get his car towed. And he finally came across this like old dilapidated farmhouse and he knocked on the door and this young woman answered the door and she was obviously, you know, scared to death. And he asked to use their phone and the young woman replied that he would have to talk to her husband. So the husband came to the door and kind of angrily told Keel that they didn't have a phone. So uh, he goes on to say that this young couple told several of their friends about his visit that night. And they concluded that it was, quote, a fearful omen of some sort. Perhaps he had been the devil himself. And I think this is kind of interesting because Keel speculates that, you know, he was dressed in all black. He wore a goatee. And both of those things would have kind of been rare in, you know, rural West Virginia during the 60s. So this couple kind of placed this event into their pre-existing religious framework. See what I did there? And uh, they concluded that he was the devil. And so, you know, Keel states that this actually kind of did end up being an, a bad omen because just a few weeks later, this young couple were among the people that died in the Silver Bridge collapse. And he uses this story to kind of illustrate how even like mundane occurrences can be like grossly misinterpreted by uh, even like well-meaning witnesses. And we talked about this a little bit, I think, um, maybe last week or in one of the Bizarre Inquiries episodes, but how over time these things can just be accepted as fact and no one questions them at that point. But Kiyokana says the other side of that coin is like sometimes seemingly mundane occurrences can take on a much deeper meaning and connections when they're compared with other similar events. So this, you know, what we talk about on the show all the time, you don't have to dig very far below the surface before you start seeing these connections between things. And that's kind of what Keel is highlighting with this whole story. And uh, this is kind of interesting. He says, I am no longer particularly interested in the manifestations of the phenomenon. I am pursuing the source of the phenomenon itself. I do the, or to do this rather, I have a objectively divorced myself from all of the popular frames of reference. I am not concerned with beliefs, but with the cosmic mechanism which has generated and perpetrated those beliefs. So basically, he's saying, you know, we talk about masks all the time. He's not interested anymore in the masks. He's interested in what's behind the mask, if that makes sense. Which just makes everything weirder the farther you get into it. If you start taking away the framework, because then it's like you're fighting almost like human nature in a way, because I've talked about this a million times on the show. I know we're always making reference to this stuff, but like everybody wants to put stuff into categories 
And when you can't put stuff in a category, people don't know how to like rationally like put like put yeah, place that yeah. in their head and in their thought train, you know? <laughs> well, and that's kind of what he's saying. Like there is no rational quote unquote explanation for a lot of this. And a lot of these categories are not categories per se. They're just like we said, they're masks. And the thing that's behind all this is kind of the big mystery, you know, and you know, these are concepts we talk about on the show all the time. And yeah, I think this is the third time I've read Mothman prophecies, but since we've been doing the show and kind of gotten a good rhythm with the research and everything, I didn't realize how much of this had kind of like seeped into my subconscious. And it was just like stuff we talk about all the time. Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that just be, the more you do the research, the more you start connecting lines. So no matter what, that's going to start happening. And if you go back and reread something we even started in the beginning of the show, we're going to start making even more ties back to it, you know, with other research that we've done updating past then. So it's like just a constant cycle, man. <laughs> yeah. And so this was a fun one to do just to kind of see the connections between all the stuff we talk about week in and week out. So uh, also in chapter one, Keel states that a large number of people who report UFO sightings possess, quote, the ability to see above and beyond the narrow spectrum of visible light. And furthermore, he kind of goes on to say that he believes that the entities that are frequently interpreted as UFOs aren't from outer space, but are another quote. There's going to be a lot of quotes in this because I can't paraphrase it better than he said it. Say so he's a writer. Of course, he, he strategically plans his words. You kind of have to, yeah. you have to so, just reuse the quotes. <laughs> so, so just... As a note, there's going to be a lot of quotes in this. But anyway, he says, uh, again, they're not from outer space, but, quote, a normal condition for this planet. But they can only kind of be seen under certain circumstances, is what he says. And he likens this to kind of the Tibetan concept of tulpas, which I think I mentioned in last week's episode. Um, and these are kind of normally invisible energies that can be manipulated and manifested into visible forms like if enough people kind of give their energy and consciousness which i think could also kind of explain ghosts and you know a lot of paranormal type stuff um but it's all about intent and kind of channeling your energies into this one thing and supposedly these you know real things can be manifested from that I mean, getting so, into the uh, higher dimensional concepts of all this stuff, I mean, one, we're talking about like trying to categorize stuff for like our reality. Can't necessarily do that with things that don't necessarily fit into the context of how our reality functions or works in the first place. And when it comes to like tulpas, for example, coming from possibly like a higher dimension, you know, you t t we were talking about it like in the DMT episode that it seems like the higher dimension above us has this ability where they can like reshape and like recreate things. And they have like these continuous, like amorphic blob type patterns. Like they don't necessarily have like a physical shape. So like the whole concept of tulpas and it's possibly being something from a higher dimension. That's basically just trying to make itself fit into category in our dimension completely makes sense to me. If you're kind of looking at it from that logic. Well, and we're going to kind of get into that more as we go along. Like He talks a lot about things being from the super spectrum, which I think kind of goes along with the whole DMT realm a lot. And it, you know, again, could just be different names for the same thing. And I mean, you're talking about also uh, that being able to see like higher, uh, higher vibrations of light or however you worded that or higher, higher frequencies. 
um, when it comes to like the DMT experiences, just connecting it again with last week's episode, um, a lot of people claim to see colors that don't exist in our reality. So again, multiple keys and access into getting into one place that seems to have a lot of continuous function when you start actually kind of piecing everything together. All right. So uh, kind of jumping back into the notes, Keel also says, and here again, another quote, once you have established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support that belief and thereby escalate it. So again, you know, we're talking about masks and the idea that, you know, if you're out in the woods and you see something, it's going to be a Bigfoot. If you're in the desert and see something, it's going to be UFO, that kind of thing. Um, and he also goes on to say that, um, high or excuse me, Point Pleasant was a microcosm of this kind of high strangeness in those days. And it was a place where many strange manifestations were occurring simultaneously. So that kind of ends chapter one. Uh, do you have any comments before we jump into chapter two? I guess just West Virginia in general being uh, being a spot for high strangeness. That's just Appalachia as a whole. <laughs> that's not even just particularly hey, West hey, Virginia. That, that's why we're doing this series, you know? Like, I find it almost kind of weird. Actually, I guess Ohio has a lot of weird stuff, too. I was going to say, this is like the opposite far side of the state. But that's kind of still the same region, you know? It, like, the Ohio Valley is kind of where this happened. So I guess technically the bottom of Ohio, I think, is still considered part of Appalachia. But I'm just looking at it from, like, the Michigander perspective that it's like, that's too close to me to be considered Appalachia. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you. So uh, chapter two is called The Creep Who Came In From The Cold. And in this chapter, we are introduced to a woman named Mary Heyer, I believe it's pronounced. H-Y-R-E. Um, if you know better than I do, please correct me. But I think it's Mary Heyer. That's what I'm going to say. That's what I'd assume, too, to be honest with you. Yeah. So anyway, she was a longtime reporter for a uh, newspaper based out of Athens, Ohio, called The Messenger. And Kiel described her as a stout woman in her early 50s, and he said that if you wanted to find out anything about the area and its people, the quickest way to do it was to ask Mary Heyer. So she was kind of just like really integral in the community and helped out a lot, you know, putting Kiel in contact with people. She was kind of the hub for all of this activity in the area. And she and Keel became acquainted through her niece, whose name was Connie Carpenter. And on November 27th of 1966, Connie Carpenter was driving home from church when she saw what she described as a large winged man. And she said that the figure was gray in color and had glowing red eyes, and she estimated that it stood over seven feet tall. And she also said that the figure was kind of like flying and pursuing her car, but uh, when it you know raised off the ground, it flew straight up, kind of like a helicopter does. Um, so after the encounter, Carpenter experienced symptoms kind of similar to eye burn, which we talk about a lot in like UFO cases where your eyes are like red and swollen shut. And Keel claims, or at least theorizes, uh, that this was because of uh, radiating uh, arctic, I believe is how it's pronounced, rays. And Carpenter's eye burn lasted for over two weeks, and he speculates that since she didn't actually see a UFO or anything like that, that the Mothman's glowing red eyes could have caused it. And he says that, you know, he kind of initially didn't 
equate these Mothman sightings with UFO activity. But as his investigation and research went on, he said, quote, later events not only proved that a relationship existed, but that relationship is also a vital clue to the whole mystery. So now we are going to fast forward to December 22nd, 1967, and this is seven days after the Silver Bridge collapse. So like I said, you know, he jumps around in timelines and narratives a lot, and I've tried to streamline it, but we're still going to kind of jump around a little bit before we get going good. You're just going to have to listen uh, to this episode multiple times like a Tarantino movie. That's just how that stuff happens, man. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, look for Easter eggs and spoilers and all that good stuff. And then you just have to go back so, and restart uh, the whole Appalachian <laughs> series. So just give everything a second listen. Just just do it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, probably listening to all of them at one time will make them even better. So People are going to start doing binges where it's just all of the Appalachian series. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary was working in her office when two strange men entered. She said they were both short and wore black overcoats. And they appeared to be uh, of Asian descent. And she later said that they seemed like they were almost like twins. And the two men kind of, you know, inquired about the flying saucer activity that was going on. But then they asked Mary, what would you do if someone ordered you to stop writing about flying saucers? And she replied something along the lines of, I'd tell them to go to hell. And she like just briefly glanced away, and when she looked back up, these two men had vanished. Is there normally a reference to them looking like they were Asian? I, that, I don't remember hearing that very so often. So I had never heard that until Mothman Prophecies, but like it's all through this book. Like he claims that you know, kind of the more interdimensional, extraterrestrial, whatever you want to call it, type men in black. That's a hallmark, which. Again, I had never heard before, uh, so maybe our listeners you know, can join in and let us know their thoughts or their information about that. But um, it's not something I had had a whole lot of familiarity with before Mothman prophecies. They're actually secret Russian spy or secret uh, Chinese spies. They're like, we hear you <laughs> advanced technology and we, we need to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway... Later that same afternoon, another strange man came into Mary's office, and she described this visitor as about five feet, seven inches tall, and with black eyes and black hair. So the black eyes, I think, is interesting because, you know, people theorize that, like, the black-eyed children and um, men in black might have some type of connection. So I thought that was a, a cool little detail. Did it make reference to if the entire eye was black or if it was just the pupil, just out of curiosity? You know, it just said black eyes. So I'm assuming just the pupil, because if they were full black, eye, you think it would have merited a little bit more <laughs> mention than it got. So I'm assuming just the pupil, but I mean, I even if the pupil's all black, that's still pretty strange. If you know the, the entire middle of the eye is still black, like it's, it's still all the same, just still just as weird. <laughs> Yeah, just, just slightly less weird. So uh, anyway, he wore a ill-fitting black suit, and he also appeared to be of some type of Asian descent. And this is kind of interesting as well. Mary said that he had strange hands with long, tapered fingers. And this is going to come up time and time again through the series, so remember that as well. And the man told Mary that his name was Jack Brown, and he was a UFO researcher. And he then asked her what she would do if she was asked to stop printing UFO stories. 
And so at this point, you know, she was kind of tipped off by all this weird activity. And she asked if he was, you know, affiliated with her two earlier visitors. And Brown kind of got defensive and he said that he was not, but he was a friend of Gray Barker, who is going to come up again in a little bit. And we also briefly discussed in our Flatwoods Monster episode. So like Shane said, you guys are just going to have to go back and listen to all of them to get the full picture. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he went on to say that he thought that John Keel was lying about all of his UFO sightings. And Mary Heyer got like really defensive about this because she said that they had been together and seen, you know, strange lights in the sky together. And so this strange Mr. Brown then asked Mary to take him to one of the locations where they had seen these things. And of course she declined and Mr. Brown kind of just left her office. So uh, this Jack Brown character also paid a visit to Mary's niece, Connie Carpenter, who we talked about a little bit earlier. And he told her that he was a friend of Mary's and you know, his questions were kind of rambling and disjointed and he didn't seem to be that interested in her actual Mothman sighting, but he did again ask what Connie thought Mary would do if she was asked to stop writing about UFOs. And again, she said she'd probably tell you to go to hell, something like that. And so after he left, Connie immediately called Mary Hare or Hire and uh, told her about the visit. Why would a UFO yeah. researcher ask another UFO researcher, what if you got asked about to stop writing about UFOs? Just so like weirdly, it's not just like a joking question, but like a serious question. doesn't seem like that would be the person that would be coming from. Otherwise, his other credentials of being a UFO researcher don't seem as legit with that question involved. Well, and I think that's kind of the thing we'll see as we go forward. Like all these strange entities, individuals, whatever you want to call them, men in black, this facade that they're operating under just makes no sense. So like what they're actually doing is kind of the big question that Keel had because, you know, they're obviously not UFO researchers. They're not, you know, uh, telephone company employees or all the things census takers, you know, all the things they claim to be. So we're going to get a lot. Like I said, the Mothman Prophecies book is more about men in black than it is the Mothman. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which I find just as interesting, so I'm ready for it. Yeah, maybe even more so, but we're going to talk about that a lot. So in December of 1967, uh, Jack Brown also visited the home of Roger and Linda Scarberry, which a lot of our listeners probably know. Those are like two of the main witnesses and like the most famous Mothman sighting, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Uh, but he said that he was friends with Mary Hire, John Keel, and Gray Barker this time. And he asked them a similar series of rambling questions. But he seemed to be most interested, you know, kind of not in their Mothman sighting, but in John Keel himself. And this is something that's going to pop up time and time again in these kind of men in black encounters is they seem more interested in asking people about other people than they do about their actual sightings, which is kind of weird. I wonder if that's one, if they are coming from somewhere, they already have an understanding of what the creature is. And they're more so curious about like a, the human's mind and like how they might need to manipulate it or whatever. Or on the other side of it, if there's a person of interest that seems to be onto something or they're, you know, possibly like really close to uncovering something like, 
maybe that's where they show the interest in is to one, either kind of push them along to see if they'll get there or to two, try to snip it in the butt before it actually gets to the point where they're able to disclose really anything that is that prolific, you know? See, I'm kind of with you on that because, you know, I've told my men in black story on the show before. And I think what I saw was totally human government agents. I don't think it was this weird or other thing, but you know, I've commented I think that those men in black agents, whatever you want to call them, were trying to see what we could see from our property when they came and visited. And I wonder if it's kind of along those same lines. They just want to see what other people know at this point. Yeah, to see if they actually have to cover anything up. Because if it's all just scattered stories, people are talking about monsters, but there's nothing solid to it then they can almost just leave it alone and they don't have anything to worry about because otherwise it just ends up becoming a part of folklore and stories. And I'm sure that they're fully aware of that, you know, like nobody's believing stuff unless you actually have a solid piece of something. Otherwise it's like half the people believe the other half don't, but you never really have any confirmed answers. Yeah. And once these, you know, weird guys show up and kind of start messing around with you a little bit, a lot of people are probably going to shut up, you know? I mean, regardless of their government employees or other weird entities, yeah, most people probably keep their mouths shut. Unless you're somebody like us, then you just wait a couple months and then drop it somewhere somewhere else (laughs) and be like, they won't find me, hopefully. (laughs) So uh, the Scarberries also said that Brown had a large tape recorder with him, but he seemed kind of unfamiliar with how to operate it, which... Again, we'll see this is a common thing that pops up. These men in black entities not knowing how like normal everyday items operate, almost as if they're from another place or another time. You know, if they were smarter, they just wouldn't interact with them at all and they would just call it a day. They'd be like, I don't want to use that and just put it down and start instead of looking at it like what the hell is this? Or if they know something yeah, might be food, like, like the just, one that tries to drink the jello, be like, I'm not yeah, yeah. I don't need anything. I don't need any sustenance and just push it away and <laughs> just be less weird about it to almost deny it at that point. <laughs> well, it's kinda like the jokes that everybody makes, like, oh, if aliens came down and you had to explain like whatever to the you know, it's kinda like that. Like if you had to explain to an alien how a spoon worked, like that's exactly what they're talking about here, you know? <laughs> and you think that they would have done enough observing at this point to at least understand how some of this stuff might function. Or if they don't have an idea, maybe those shouldn't be the agents that they're sending. They should send somebody who's already done like a full study of humans and knows how to interact with whatever gets thrown at them. <laughs> Maybe this is like the B team. <laughs> They're like, but, you uh, guys can go ask the questions. You guys, you guys don't fly the ships. That that's for the A team. You guys are just the ones that do. You're the cleanup crew. You're the B team. <laughs> so uh, after this encounter with the Scarberries, this Jack Brown character was never seen again in Point Pleasant that we know of. And so, kind of to end chapter two, Keel says that the UFO lore is populated with the mysterious visitors claiming ordinary common names like Smith, Jones, so you could be one of them, uh, Kelly, Allen, and Brown. I am definitely a a mysterious visitor. Yeah, 100%. I'm telling you right now on the air, I am am an alien. (laughs) (laughs) And he also says that these descriptions of kind of modern UFO pilots that were given to him by contactees, seem to match the behavior and characteristics of like Jack Brown and these other men in black. 
uh, he says, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but kind of the hallmarks, they often wear clothes that are out of fashion or not appropriate for the occasion. They drive old model cars that seem to be in like suspiciously good condition. And again, they seem to be familiar or unfamiliar with common everyday items like, you know, Jack Brown and his tape recorder. And so Keel says that with the men in black, there's always some small error, some slip of dress or behavior that betrays them. So we've kind of hit on a little bit of that so far, but that is the end of chapter two. Started getting that uncanny valley feeling. Like, I wonder if like, obviously I've never seen one of these things in person, but I wonder if like, if you look into their face, if you'd get that like off feeling too, or if it's simply just from like their mannerisms on how they like handle objects. See, I think so, because we're going to get into more like people commenting that these things seem to have like an air of evil about them. And, you know, not to get canceled or anything, but I almost wonder, you know, everybody described them as being vaguely Asian. You know, you talked about kind of your reptilian encounter before. I almost wonder if these things had more like reptilian type features and, you know, 1960s rural people were just describing them in the best terms they had. And, you know, in the 60s, we're not that far removed from World War II at this point where, you know, the Japanese are the enemy, you know? So I almost wonder if that's kind of flavoring these people's perception and opinions about these things. Or they purposely were choosing to look that way so that they could intimidate people more because the average person at that time was intimidated by Asian ethnicity, especially after the war. And they're worried about spies, for example. So you have these people showing up in like all black outfits that look Asian. They start asking you very, off the wall questions. I guarantee you these people are freaked out that they were spies. And when it comes to spies, man, like you could just disappear from your house and nobody would, nobody would even know where to start looking for you at. Well, cause you talk about um, how, how the, how ships maybe we're going to get into that later. I mean, you talk about how the, how, uh, how the phenomenon changes and it seems like in a lot more of the updated men in black encounters, there's a lot more of like the really pale white skin, um, the Nordic, yeah, more of like the Nordic look, which again could mm-hmm. be because maybe that freaks people out more because it does look a little bit more like uh, the typical depiction of like a gray or something, you know? Well, and, you know, we talked about um, the whole Nephilim clown theory. Like that almost kind of gets into that too, like the pale skin and stuff. So there's, you know, so many rabbit holes we could fall down with that. And, like that's one of my favorite topics, like the whole intersection of like, you know, religion and race and all that with the UFO phenomena. I think it's fascinating. Like, especially like when you talk about like the Nazis being into occultism and some of their beliefs and stuff like that. I mean, it's crazy, you know, I'm kind of curious now, if you look into specific eras of men in black sightings, if they might line up with current events of the time, meaning that like maybe, you know, around like early 2000s that maybe like the men in black may have had more of like a Middle Eastern look to them, for example. And maybe if there was men in black sightings that were documented before the 60s, before we went to Vietnam and we had the Korean War and all that kind of stuff, if maybe they looked a little bit more like how like a Nazi officer would look, for example. Like, I wonder if they try to choose whatever the standard at that time is for somebody that would be like intimidating, like even during like the cold war, for example, I wonder if some of the men in black sightings would have been, they would have seemed like they were a little bit more like, 
like Russian, Russian or like Soviet or something. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if we can kind of document this and line it up and see if there's other cases where it might fit in like that, depending on the time era. See, I haven't run across anything that specific in more modern times, but I've got this Men in Black book that um, Nick Redfern wrote. I believe it's called The Real Men in Black. And he kind of goes through like kind of ancient uh, legends and whatnot and kind of points out connections possibly between these legends and the men in black. And he brings up vampires specifically that there's a lot of traits with vampires and the men in black that are similar, like having to be invited into your house and things like that. So I think you might be onto something like, like I said, I haven't seen any more recent examples of that, but uh, maybe there's some older ones floating around out there. I mean, even just beyond like the wars, and everything going on. I wonder if, like, even depending on, like, what the most popular thing is in the media at the time, you know? Like, maybe when some of the more, like, pale-looking uh, Men in Black sightings were happening was maybe during, like, when the rise of all the vampire movies was happening. Maybe they kind of geared themselves to be slightly intimidating based on what the, like, most common fear of that time era is, even, even involving media, you know? Yeah, going back to wearing masks, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, they already know they're going to get the information. Like, I feel like they already go in knowing the information that you know sometimes. So maybe some of it's trying to pull information, and then other times is more so just trying to intimidate. And they're not necessarily trying to get information, so they'll mask themselves in something more intimidating, where if they're trying to get information, they might try to look intimidating, but still kind of have somewhat of a look of somebody that you could talk to. You know what I mean? But that's kind of the interesting thing about a lot of these encounters. They seem to know a lot, but they seem to also not know a lot. So it's a very strange, like you said, uncanny valley type dynamic that's going on here. And maybe if you bring in telepathy, they're just trying to to pull it. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see what our listeners kind of think about this whole men in black phenomenon as we get deeper into this. So, I mean, I think this would be a great one to have like a discussion, you know, Patreon mini show something just so you know kind of a round table type deal oh yeah i would definitely be down for that we could definitely set something up like that so um anyway that's all i've got for chapter two so i will jump into chapter three if you don't have anything else no cut me off before i keep going into the men in black because you know i'll go on to that for like an hour and a half and uh, we'll we're sidetrack talk a lot about them so <laughs> we're probably gonna gonna uh hit on a lot of it well push me back but, down the men in black track instead of me <laughs> circling in the same area <laughs> hey, no this is fine we're just hitting a lot of our uh, you know kind of conclusions and theories as we go which is also fun breaks up all the reading true <laughs> but anyway chapter three is called the flutter of black wings And uh, we're going to kind of breeze through this chapter because most of this chapter is Keel just kind of describing several accounts of like strange winged creatures that happened all over the world throughout history. And like I said, I'm trying to focus this as much as possible on just like Point Pleasant and the Mothman sightings. Just a quick side question, though. Do you know when Chernobyl happened? Not off the top of my head. That was like 70s. Okay, so that was after this then, because I was just curious if within this chapter he makes reference to the Chernobyl Blackbird. I'm not sure. He didn't talk about it in the book, so that means, I mean, it might be after this. The book was published in 75. A lot of the stuff that happened, you know, was like 66, 67. I mean, it it had to have been after, because I feel like that would have been too big of a thing for him not to make reference to, because that's like the closest thing to... Mothman. It, it had to have been after the book. 
I would think so, but, uh, you know, probably in that same kind of 60s, 70s timeline would be my guess. Uh, but like I said, I don't know off the top of my head. But um, anyway, Keel says that these winged beings are, quote, an essential part of the folklore of every culture. And he says that historically they kind of fall under three main archetypes. Uh, number one is the winged man. And oftentimes these wings that are reported on these things are reported as being either like mechanical or part of a suit. And then there's the giant bird. And this is similar to kind of the Thunderbirds of Native American legend. And the third archetype is what he calls the monstrous demon. And he says that they are often described as having glowing red eyes, which, you know, we talk about all the time with Dogman and all sorts of other cryptids. And he says they have bats' wings, which is an interesting one. Just to drop it in here, because I always like to make sure I go back and correct stuff. April 26, 1986. That's when the Chernobyl disaster happened. Okay, so that was actually later than I was thinking. but. And then yeah, another so. side note for the native stuff. You made reference to Thunderbirds, one thing that I've dived into a bunch of times in the show. Maybe I'll do an episode about it in the future. But Ravenmockers from Cherokee yeah. Legend also like almost parallel the depict the depiction and descriptions of Mothman. Yeah, exactly. And so Keel says that like all three of these archetypes are probably somehow like interrelated and they also have a connection to, you know, luminous phenomena and UFO activity. So that's kind of all I had for chapter three. Like I said, it's, it's a whole chapter of just accounts from all over the world. Uh, it's fun to read, but, trying to streamline it here. So chapter four is called take the train. And in this chapter, Keel kind of dives into what he thinks the true nature of the phenomenon might be. And this is a good quote that I, um, I think anyway, he begins by saying, uh, quote, today, many of us no longer believe in direct visits with our God. So we have shaped a new mythology based upon the belief in spacemen carved in our own image. When the ancients sighted giant, shambling bipeds covered with hair, their eyes blazing like fierce coals, they assumed that, the, excuse me, <clears throat> they assumed they were confronting demons. Early investigators eventually concluded that such demons did not really exist, even though they often left footprints behind and caused physical damage. They coined the word chimera to describe them. So I think that's a really cool quote. You know, this is stuff he was talking about in 1975. And this is stuff that, you know, is kind of in vogue in the paranormal realm now. You know, so I think it's really, the whole Nephilim concept. Realistically, yeah, he was really ahead of his time in a lot of ways. But uh, he goes on about this kind of chimera concept and he says that the chimeras can appear in a variety of shapes and sizes, but one common historical archetype has a lot of the same behaviors and characteristics as more modern extraterrestrial and men in black type entities. And he says that uh, many of the physical symptoms that are reported by what he calls witnesses of chimerical events are identical to what historically people say happened to them during religious miracles or contacts with demons or the fairy realm. And so Kiel kind of concludes that all of these things are the same thing coming from the same source. 
And this is exactly what we talk about on the show week in and week out. You know, all these historical, biblical, ancient things, we're all talking about the same thing. It's just what people choose to call them. And uh, just to put a little teaser out here, since we're in the middle of dropping Easter eggs left and right within this series, uh, I haven't even told Orin this yet, so I'll be telling you directly too here, but there may or may not be an episode that I'm working on that is comparing and contrasting the differences between fairy lore and UFOs. So just something to look forward to. First off, that is a great idea for an episode. I love that shit, and it's going to tie in nicely to all of this. So figure that I could can tail up the series after part this. of the unofficial series. <laughs> At least I'll have a part in the unofficial series that I did the research for. <laughs> but we'll we'll throw in I have uh, a Japanese folklore story that will happen probably before that, but that might be the next one after that. But I am also working on another. Uh, I don't want to call it urban urban legend, but it's like a Russian legend that connects in with Sasquatch, but absolutely fantastic. But I, I got a few things that I got in my back pocket that I'm working on. They're all going to be some awesome stuff coming up, but I'll, maybe I'll have to do that one sooner than that one because it will tie in with the series. Well, good. Cause I'm going to need a little bit of a break after doing all this Mothman research. Well, man, I'll already have like four or five lined <laughs> up for after this. So we're good. We're rolling, man. <laughs> Perfect. So in chapter key, uh, in chapter four, Keel also says, that as a society, we've kind of been brainwashed to b- believe the whole extraterrestrial hypothesis. And he says that through his research, he came to reject outright the hypothesis. And he elaborates and says, I have come to realize that we have been observing, observing complex forces, which have always been an essential part of our immediate environment. Instead of thinking in terms of extraterrestrials, I have adopted the concept of ultra-terrestrials, beings and forces which coexist with us but are on another time frame. That is, they operate outside the limits of our space-time continuum yet have the ability to cross over into our reality. The other world is not a place, however, as Mars or Andromeda are places, but is a state of of energy and i know you've got something to say about that (laughs) sounds like the whole dmt concept talking about a reality that exists just beyond our reality that doesn't seem to actually possess any type of physical shape which also makes it so that it's harder to detect because it's it's working in a dimensional concept that's higher than our reality and method of thinking. Like it reminds me of the thing I constantly mention about we are always looking for life from the aspect of it being carbon based because that's what we are. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't life existing all around us that we are completely unaware of because it is not a carbon based life form. And it's funny how the deeper people get into all of these type subjects, whether it be UFOs, Bigfoot, whatever, people always come back to this idea of like energy and plasma and vibration and things like that. So, you know, it seems to me there's there's something to it, whether that's all there is to it or like we were talking about on the DMT episode, it's almost like a key to opening some type of doorway, which is kind of more what I believe. Dude, there's I feel like there's a giant idea of energy. I feel like there's a giant doorway that leads into this whole expanded, ridiculously insane to comprehend universe. And as the human race right now, all of us are trying to basically like 
we're trying to beat down the door like a giant thick insulated door with like our fingers just scratching at it because it's like we're there we're aware the door is there we're fully aware of the door we just don't understand how the door opens like we're we're like right there you know what i mean but it's like that plate is that door is so so thick and armor plated that we may not actually get through it and actually figure out how to open that door within our lifetime but we're we're like right there man like it drives me crazy <laughs> like there's something to it we like just we're so close yet so far away it. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. we're we're so close yet so far away. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in this chapter, Keel also says that he believes that the UFO phenomenon is only one aspect of a much larger paranormal phenomenon. And he says that it's kind of divided into two main components. He says the first and most important component, quote consists of the mysterious aerial lights which appear to have intelligence of their own. So this kind of sounds like orbs to me. You know, we talk about how orbs seem to be under some sort of intelligent control. And he says the second component, quote, consists of the cover or camouflage for the first part. And this is what we talk about. Yeah, and I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you cook on this one because you talk about the orbs being kind of what's behind the mask so here you go shane dude i've heard so many people make reference to this but they kind of like dance around my point like i've had like sasquatch researchers that think that they're like sasquatch are able to compress themselves into these orbs of lights but like dude no matter how much stuff we dig into i'm shocked that nobody else is out here talking about this i legitimately think that there is a lot of tangible proof that these orbs that people are seeing are the physical entities and they just choose to shape themselves as something else. And I mean, they could even, I mean, they change color. So, I mean, all they have to do to become completely invisible, they may never actually ever go away. Cause sometimes say, people say the lights just disappear. They may never go away. They might just change to a color that our eyes can't comprehend and that they're still there. It's just at certain times they are colors that we can see when they want us to see them. And once we're aware of them, they might be like, Oh shit, let's throw a Bigfoot at them. <laughs> yeah. And this gets back to energy and plasma and everything we were just talking about, you know, <laughs> yeah. dude, Q, apparently Keel was getting to the same point too. Like everybody's kind of dancing around the same concept, man. Like, I wish you could just like, yeah, and he did this shit like 50 years ago. <laughs> that's what know? I'm saying, man. There's something to it. And it's like, that makes it even more, even harder to make it tangible because it's not like you can capture one of these orbs because they're not necessarily physical. But again, even going into what I was talking about, we look at life like it's carbon based. These things could legitimately be the other life that exists within our reality, within where we are, but we can't comprehend them as life because we have no way of like measuring them as a life force. Yeah, and it's like I talk about sometimes on the show, you know, I do think there are extraterrestrials that have visited our planet, but I think a lot of this kind of paranormal activity is the work of this other thing, and quote-unquote, because I don't have a better name for it, and these orbs could be whatever that other thing is, you know, whatever fairies and all of this stuff is, could be the orbs, you know? I mean, just to throw something in here that I just randomly thought about while we're talking about this. So you talk about all like the regularly reoccurring extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, whatever you want to call them, like the greys. And people make theories on them saying that they might actually be from here or somewhere not so far. They're coming interdimensional. Maybe that's definitely the possibility for those. But the, like the one-off ones that people only see it once and they never see it again. 
almost seem like they could be more logical that those are actual extraterrestrials because they might just be on a path to somewhere else and they just need to stop, resupply, refuel, and take back off. So it almost seems like it'd be more plausible that if there was extraterrestrials, they would only be one-offs because they'd be only stopping here in the process of going somewhere else. Otherwise, they'd have to be somewhere around us, which would get back into they have to be from here, somewhere in our solar system. And it seems like within our solar system, the most logical place there could be life is Earth. But then, sorry, I'm going on a chain of thought here. Going into stuff that may not be carbon-based, other planets that we couldn't live on doesn't mean that another life force couldn't live on it that, again, has a totally different makeup than us. Yeah, or like we talked about, they're just on the other side of the curtain. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, they could even just simply be able to change their. Co- I mean, you see camouflage of the nature all the time with a lot of different animals. They're able to change their color. I mean, who's to say there's not intelligent stuff around us. They can simply just change their color the same as a lot of animals can do, except they're existing in a place different than ours where they can change themselves to colors that we can't, we can't see. <laughs> so they can literally still be physical right in front of you, but you just can't see them. <laughs> well, that's a good segue back into the notes. Because Keel says that this kind of camouflaging phenomenon uh, has, quote, always been adjusted to the psychology and beliefs of each particular period in time. They are transmorgifications of energy under the control of some unknown extra dimensional intelligence. So, again, the phenomenon wearing masks. And just to continue on with a more modern day thing, when everybody talks about the camouflage now, what is the most common way people describe it or the most common variation of camouflage people talk about? I mean, the Bigfoot or the lights, I'd say, are the two big ones. Oh, I was gonna, just going to say the Predator uh, camouflage, which goes into modern movies, oh, what's uh, in people's uh, minds and you, thoughts. You went somewhere different with that than I did. Sorry, I, okay. I, was, I thought I, I was leading you into it. I led you in a totally different direction. But yeah, just going into like the whole modern concept that people describe it through stuff they're familiar with in the modern, which again, everybody describes the camouflage concept as predator Kinda camouflage. Like the pixelated type stuff. So it might just be fitting that idea so that people have somewhere that's a frame of reference, which also kind of makes sense as far as like psyoping it being like, Oh, that looks just like that thing from that movie. And then people go, oh, you just described something from a movie. Like, I don't believe you. Unless you're actually somebody that researches this stuff. How often do people say, hey, it looked just like the the fucking Predator? You know, like and like you were talking about earlier with the Men in Black, maybe that's the mask they're currently wearing. Because a lot of these stories we we read where people say that are from more modern times. Mm -hmm. Or on the other side of it, too. And I know people have thrown this concept, too, that uh, a lot of these movies are getting ideas from outside forces. And be it if it's something implanted in their mind or they've possibly seen something or they've talked to people who have seen something, it's getting accompanied into movies. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Keel says that kind of human beings interactions with and interpretations of this unknown intelligence has kind of been the basis for much of the world's religions and folklore. And again, he specifically points out like legends of vampires and fairies and like even Greek gods that are all based off of this phenomenon. And he says, again, it's very similar to the modern UFO lore, which gets back to shit we talk about all the time, issues of language, people describing indescribable things with the best language they have. Mm-hmm. And that's going to constantly be changing as time goes on, man. 
No doubt in my mind. Exactly. All right. So chapter five is called The Cold Who Came Down in the Rain. And this is a big one. In chapter five, we're introduced to a man named Woodrow Derenberger. And on November 2nd of 1966, he was driving home from his job. Uh, he worked as an appliance salesman. And this is another cold, rainy night. And as he neared his home in Mineral Wells, West Virginia, he came across a strange object that was kind of blocking the road as he was driving. And he said that it was charcoal gray in color, and it resembled, quote, an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck and then enlarging in a great bulge in the center. And he said as he was stopped in the road, a door opened on the side of this object and a man stepped out. And Derenberger said that the man was approximately 5 feet 10 inches tall. He had tan skin which we talked about earlier, and slicked uh, back black hair, which we talked about a little bit. And he said he had a huge grin. So keep that in mind. This is going to come up again. <laughs> I'm just thinking he of the said, Joker at the moment. Every single time I start digging into I don't want to drop I mean, the main guy's name at this point, but I always just imagine that that Joker smile. The man, and uh, what does that kind of get back into the whole Nephilim clown theory? Mm -hmm. but, what, was that, what was that old movie that that originally came from? It was like the man that that always laughs or something like that. I'm not sure about that. Ooh, I'll come back to it. I'll, I'll let you, let you bounce back in and I'll <laughs> drop the name in a few minutes. All right. So, uh, Darren Berger said that the man was also wearing a dark overcoat, but underneath he was wearing quote, a garment made of glistening greenish metal, almost metallic in appearance. This kind of sounds like how the Hopkinsville goblins were described to me. But anyway, the man approached Derenberger's truck, and he telepathically communicated with him to roll his windows down. And so they kind of were communicating telepathically more, and he said that his name was Cold, C-O-L-D, Cold. And during their telepathic conversation, Mr. Cold told uh, Derenberger that he would visit again soon and that Derenberger needed to tell the authorities about their meeting. So Mr. Cold went back inside the object, and it rose in the air and flew away. And Derenberger reported the encounter to the Parkersburg Police Department, and he was questioned by both local and state police officers. And they kind of thought that there was something to it. Like They put a little bit of stock in this, kind of like we talked about with uh, Flatwoods and Hopkinsville. Um, and so this story was featured in local newspapers and on local radio and television. And because of this media exposure, other people came forward and they said that while they were driving on that same road that night, uh, they had not only seen the same object, but they had saw a man speaking with someone through the window of a truck. So I thought that was kind of crazy. Confirmation from others that were just passing by. That makes it that much yeah. more interesting. Also, The Man yep. Who Laughs, that's the name of that movie from 1928. There you go. But, no, that sounds familiar. And then also coming back with that, uh, with that, what you were talking about with the Hopskinville Goblins while I was in the midst of looking that up, um, definitely does seem to have a common trope, even with like Pascagoula, for example, that it's all of these mm -hmm. like sure. metallic-y suits. And then it brings back the question of, again, with the Flatwoods Monster, are these actual 
actually suits that they're wearing or so so there's actually like something that looks completely different inside or is it actually the being itself and it's just that like with certain experiments or certain experiences like this one you actually get to see the thing's face underneath but like that being being said like i'm kind of curious if uh what the flatwoods monster would have looked like without the face piece especially considering it was described as mechanical how uh the pascagoula abduction aliens would have looked without their face masks and even going into like sam the sand down clown which was described kind of the same but with wood instead of being metallic which still i don't know kind of fits within that same category to me like it just keeps coming back around to i think that these things are some sort of suit and not the actual being itself if it even is a being well, and know, it might not be some type of again technology that they're trying to test out or something for example with Flatwoods, we have the account that happened the next night of the couple who encountered a similar creature that had, you know, kind of the dress apparatus, but they said it had a reptilian-looking face. So uh, maybe that's what these things look like without their armor or suit on, and that opens a whole nother can of worms. Like they're all just multiple different types of entities, which again, kind of could go into the whole idea that these might actually be extraterrestrials that are more so just passing through, and that even with the Pascagoula with the mask line, it could have actually been a mask, but it could have been some type of breathing apparatus and not an actual mask covering up a human face like I've kind of theorized about a few times. Yeah, like with all this stuff, the connections are there, and the more connections you see, it almost raises more questions than it answers, I think. Mm-hmm. Because assumably, like, the face mask, I, I, I can't, I guess you can't necessarily say it would look somewhat like the thing underneath, but at least as far as the pictures I've seen for, like, Flatwoods, how people described, now that, I, now that I'm, like, refreshing it in my mind, um, how people described the face with and without the helmet seemed like they were somewhat similar. Like, it kind of, the face was still along the same shape, but it was, like, what the helmet would be. But, like, you think of, like, a human in, like, a space helmet, and obviously you have no idea what the actual physical face looks like for that one. Yeah. So it's just, like, yeah, kind of a back and forth that do these things underneath actually look somewhat like the mask looks, or do they look completely different? And, again, it's just some type of breathing apparatus or space helmet or mask, you know what I mean? Not necessarily like yeah. a boo, I'm going to scare you or hide my face mask, but a, a mask that actually has some type of purpose, purpose. for them. Yeah, for sure. So uh, two days later, on November 4th, uh, Derenberger claimed that he suddenly felt a tingling sensation excuse me, in his forehead, and Mr. Cold began telepathically communicating with him again. And he said that he was from the planet Lanulos, which was located in the galaxy of Ganymede. And he said that Lanulos was very similar to Earth, and he had a wife and two sons there. And, you know, we talk about Hellier a lot on this show. They talk about this a lot in Hellier. So if you guys are interested in this whole injured cold phenomenon, definitely check out Hellier. Uh, you'll learn a lot more about it and get a lot more information. But uh, when Mr. Cold's communication with Derenberger was complete, he claimed that he felt a sharp pain in his temple, and he nearly passed out. And so kind of, this is interesting, I think. Two men claiming to be traveling salesmen appeared in the town of Mineral Wells, where he lived, shortly after the encounter. 
And one of the men was supposedly tall and blonde and appeared to be of Scandinavian descent. And the other man was short and had pointed features and an olive uh, complexion. So this gets back to what we were talking about earlier as far as do these entities pick the current fears of the day to wear the mask of? So, I mean, basically, let's be real. They, they look like a Nazi and a Japanese person, kind mm -hmm. of. That's, yeah, exactly what I was thinking, too. <laughs> yeah, so, um, again, par for the course, Keel said that these two men seem to be far more interested in questioning the locals about Derenberger's encounter than, like, actually doing business or selling things, even though they claim to be traveling salesmen. They'd be like, I got Bibles for sale. So about them aliens, you know what happened with yeah, this? You know what happened real. with that? Sorry, I'd like to buy a Bible. Yeah, but the aliens, though, that's crazy. You got to talk about them, right? Like, how can you not talk about it? <laughs> well, that's pretty much exactly what he says happens. So um, they talk them out of the sale out. to talk about aliens. <laughs> yeah. So closing out chapter five, this might be another opportunity for you to cook. Uh, he briefly touches on some of the Native American history in the Point Pleasant area. And he talks about Chief Cornstalk, and I'm just going to briefly touch on this so you can go if you want to. But he says um, that the Shawnees fought a battle in the area in the uh, uh, 1760s, and according to legend, Chief Cornstalk put a curse on the land before being killed. Do you have anything to add on that? Well, I mean, just the whole like Harbinger of Doom concept that it seems like, uh, you know, the Mothman is supposedly seen before some type of catastrophic event and that seems to kind of be the motif with this and with like the Native American curses and stuff is that like the Ravenmocker, all of these things, they pop up before traumatic events and they seem to be more linked possibly with uh, curses or something getting restirred back up in the land, um, which usually when stuff gets stirred up in the land, usually some type of catatrophic event happens. So... No, I knew you'd have uh, some stuff to talk about with that. We kind of compared notes earlier, and I knew the the Chief Cornstalk stuff was something you were interested in. But that could almost be its own on. episode, going from like front to back, as far as like the whole Cornstalk yeah, stuff goes. Go. But yeah, we'll we'll leave that there for now, um, because I want to make sure that if we're uh, talking about all of the Native American lore stuff, I want to make sure I'm up to date on it and make sure that I'm dropping all the correct information as far as the legends and lore goes. <laughs> Well, I know we've gone a little long tonight, but I wanted to get to a good stopping point. So if it's okay with you, we will go through one more chapter. Of course. We're only about running an hour and 20, so an hour and a half, two hours. That's usually within our episode range, but let's just roll it. <laughs> okay. So chapter six is called Mothman with an exclamation mark. Mothman. Just dropping a teaser. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So in this episode, we talk about the most famous Mothman sighting, and that's why I thought it would be a good stopping place for this episode. So on November 15th of 1966, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallett were kind of just on a joyride through a secluded part of Mason County, the kind of the Point Pleasant area that was known locally as the TNT area. It's located about seven miles from Point Pleasant, and it was originally an animal preserve and birds uh, sanctuary called the McClintic Wildlife Station. And during World War II, the land was seized and used for manufacturing of explosives. 
And what do I always say? Whenever eminent domain and the government seizing property or land comes up, that should always be a huge red flag. Why did they seize that land and what were they doing with it? My main question goes to what is under the ground there? What what tunnel systems do they now have there that are probably still being functioned but have been blocked off through those entrances at least? (laughs) Well, when they seized this land to make the you know, uh, TNT area, they built a lot of small buildings and miles of underground tunnels. <laughs> See, I already know yeah. what's going to happen. The government gets miles. involved. There's tunnels. There's always tunnels. <laughs> yeah. And they also built a bunch of, uh, large concrete domes or people refer to them as igloos. And these were built to kind of store the explosives once they were completed. And after the war, they kind of shut this facility down, and the entrances and exits to the tunnels were blocked with large concrete slabs, <laughs> which is kind of interesting why. I mean, what did they potentially find down there that they had to be blocked off? Or, like I said, it's still being used. They just want to close out the entrance to that area. Or they left one open because they, of course, need to have an escape hatch hidden somewhere. It's probably one of those hatches that's like buried under dirt and stuff that you'll never find. And the only way you're ever going to find is if somebody comes from underneath and pushes all the dirt and everything off the top of it. But, you know, even after they closed up these tunnels, there were still like the domes and a lot of the buildings and whatnot that were left on the property. And they kind of just let this stuff rot. A lot of it's still there today. Um, So at approximately... uh, 1130 on the night in question, Roger was driving the car that his family owned. And they, like I said, they're on a joy ride through this area and they drove past an abandoned generator plant. And as they were driving past, Linda saw two large glowing red eyes staring at them like from beyond in the darkness. And Roger slammed on brakes and the couple said that they saw these glowing red eyes appear And it looked like they belonged to a large humanoid creature. And they, again, said that the creature was grayish in color and had man-like legs. So very similar to Connie Carpenter's description. And Roger later added that it was shaped like a man, but bigger. Maybe six and a half or seven feet tall. And it had big wings folded against its back. And so they said that the creature kind of shuffled toward the door of the abandoned generator plant. And so at this point, you know, they were hysterical. Roger, he floored the car and headed out of the TNT area toward the main road back to Point Pleasant. But as they were driving, they saw the creature or one that was identical or very similar standing on a hill by the road. And as they passed by the creature, it spread its wings and took off again, flying straight up into the air without flapping his wings. And the creature seemed to follow the car until they reached the Point Pleasant city limits, which I think that's kind of an odd fact. Also, like, okay, so this thing followed them until they got to the actual town. I I, I don't know. He was just trying to tell them a secret. He was just trying to tell them. I was waiting for whenever you're going to drop it. You're going to drop it again here in a second. Can you imagine that? He just comes up to the window and he just just drops that. That's all he was trying to tell him. (laughs) You just want to make sure you knew his name, but you've messed up his name, which is why he keeps showing himself again. It's because he just wants somebody to get his damn name right. So as they were uh, driving, Roger noted that 
quote, we were going a hundred miles an hour and the bird kept right up with us. It wasn't even flapping its wings. And so once the scarberries and the mallets got to Point Pleasant, they went straight to the uh, Mason County Sheriff's Office and they reported what they had told or what they had seen rather. And they told it to Deputy uh, Millard Halstead. And this deputy later told Keel that, you know, he had known the Scarberries and the Mallets since they were kids. And, you know, they were visibly terrified. He had no reason not to believe them. So he thought they were telling the truth. They had at least seen something. And so the deputy got into his patrol car and he followed Roger back into the TNT area to investigate. And when they arrived back at the generator plant, of course, they found no sign of the creature. But Halstead said that he switched on his police radio and a very loud signal, quote unquote, blasted out of the speaker, dropping out the voice of the police dispatcher in Point Pleasant. He said it was a loud garble, like a record or tape recording being played at very high speed. So this kind of gets back to a lot of things like uh, electronic interference. And we're going to see as we move forward in this series, a lot of like telephone interferences and this kind of metallic tape recorder type phenomenon going on. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Still kind of reminds me of that concept we're talking about with uh, when portals theoretically open, they're going to pull energy from other things. And when you pull energy from these audio devices, they end up sounding overmodulated, messed up, or maybe it was pushing too much energy into it, which is why it created a high pitch, like high speed sound was because it was actually the opposite rather than it getting energy pulled from it. It was getting too much energy pushed into it. Well, we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit more in episode two. So keep teaser. That in mind. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I just need to get a button that does that. I need to get teaser alert or something. I don't know. I'll come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next morning, the sheriff, his name was George Johnson and he called a press conference to address the situation and the Scarberries and the Mallets were interviewed by local reporters and news of the incident you know, pretty quickly spread all over the region and beyond. And one reporter dubbed the creature the Mothman. And from everything I can come up with, they called it the Mothman because Batman would have been a better description, but Batman was already taken. <laughs> He's Batman, not this guy. <laughs> no. And that is all I've got for part one. And, of course, it's always an option that the Mothman... Here's an idea. Aliens. Gotta drop it once per episode. That's one of my favorite buttons to use. <laughs> always. So, I apologize for going a little long this episode. Like I said, I wanted to get to a good stopping point, and I thought the Marbury or Scarberry Mallet, excuse me, encounter was a great stopping point. So, hey, going on go. with all of the Marvel jokes, this is a, the equivalent to the part in the Avengers part one where at the end he snaps his fingers and everybody disappears. We yeah, got to leave everybody on a cliffhanger. <laughs> what happened? Who knows? You guys got to wait till next week to figure it out. So you better come back. <laughs> And speaking of that, if you guys enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a review or rating for the show on iTunes or Spotify. Or if you think somebody might enjoy this particular episode, share it with them through word of mouth, share clips of the show, share the whole episode. And for everybody out there that is a regular listener or you kind of cherry pick some of the episodes, you guys can always put the show on auto download, 
counts that as a listen for us and helps boost up the show and the algorithms. And any help that you guys give, we absolutely appreciate it, more than you guys will ever know. And the only way this show will continue to keep on growing is with your guys' help. So again, don't forget to do a little bit of something as far as the background goes. Just simply leaving a rating is absolutely fantastic. We haven't gotten a five-star or any re- any review. I don't want to say I haven't gotten... We've- haven't gotten a five-star. We haven't gotten any reviews as of recently. So if anybody wants to drop one, would greatly appreciate it. And of course, we will read on the show and give you a huge shout-out. And as always, do all the internet things, all the social media things. And you guys definitely remember to submit questions for Bizarre Inquiries. And don't forget to drop those encounters so that we can talk about your encounters or possibly even investigate them. And uh, you guys can do that at OMMEncounterReports at Outlook.com or you guys can also go to the link tree, fill the submission form, and it will go directly to my email. But there are two submission forms, so make sure you guys click on the right one because there is a contact us, and there also is a report and encounter. And with that being said, also, every single thing that we've mentioned is all available in the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And I have been the one, the only Shane Squatch. And I've been Orn. And guys, again, I tell you every week because I think you guys might forget because it's seven days in between episodes. So just in case you did forget, always, guys, stay bizarre. 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 Glowing red eyes? Bizarre.